Um, what's this? What was the problem with prophesying? Anybody remember? In the Old Testament, what was a problem with prophesying that often occurred? Okay, false prophets. Robert, any development of that? Do you have any examples that come to mind of that? Okay. Hananiah, remind, refresh our memory on that. Okay, good. All right, so you have false prophets in contradiction to God's true prophets. Uh, we talked about that some uh, in connection with 1 John, right? So it also ties in with... Um, with uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. Um, a little bit with 13, but more 1 Corinthians 12 and maybe 14. Um, Paul talks about it there, and then 2 Corinthians 11, I think. So there's a theme in the Old and the New Testament both, that just as there are people who are speaking God's true words to God's true people, there are also people who are speaking false words uh, to try to deceive God's people and to deceive those who are opposed to God. So, what is going on in verse 3? Why are the father and mother saying, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely? Is that in fulfillment of anything that God required? Braden? I think, I mean, that is, that would be an interesting interpretation in light of what people call the 400 silent years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning and the coming of Christ. I don't know that that's specifically what he's saying in the context because what sort of prophets are being, uh, verse 3, pierced through? False prophets. False prophets. And what, was that in obedience or fulfillment of anything that God had said? Okay. Listen to this phrase from Deuteronomy. Uh, I think it's Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 19. Whoever will not listen to my words, which he will speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if a thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Uh, at the end of the 1800s, there was a group called, as I recall, the Millerites, and they were professing the idea that the end of the, the end of the world was going to happen at such and such date and time. It was like 1898, 1899, somewhere in there. And that did not come true. So in terms of evaluating whether they were true or false prophets, what can we conclude? They were false prophets. The challenge with false prophecy is in terms of dates and predictions of the future, it's something that has to be evaluated retroactively. Does that make sense? Like you can't, 
know if it's going to be true until you see if the thing they said was going to happen happens. The thing that's being emphasized in 13 verse 3 is that if anyone still prophesies, and I would argue prophesies falsely, why is the response of father and mother, you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord? Because his prophecy doesn't come true. And so what is the response of father and mother, verse 3? When it says pierce him through, it's not saying say harsh things to him. What's it saying? Kill him, which lines up with what we see, for example, in when the people of Israel commit idolatry, when Moses is up on the mountain speaking with God, come back down, Moses says, every Levite, grab yourself a what? A sword or a spear and pierce through those who are participating in this idolatrous form of worship. Here's the argument I think I would make from this, these verses. God is saying, in the day when I purge the land of idolatry, there are going to still be people who try to pop up and say, I'm speaking for God, I'm speaking for God. When their words prove false, God was going to call on his people, Israel, their own family members, their own countrymen, to do what the Levites did, for which God praised them at the mountain, and put to death those who were false prophets. That seems very... Um, I mean, harsh is kind of an underwhelming term. Extreme. Are we called to do this today? I would say no. Right. Uh, Romans 12 talks about God taking vengeance, um, which in that context is more about personal affront, but we could spin it to say, well, God's name has been affronted, so I will take vengeance on God's behalf. The, the uh, attitude of the New Testament shifts not because God has changed his mind, but because he's working through a different group of people in a different way. It's not a military, physical um, purging of sin. Well, let me just put it this way. In the Old Testament... When there was a false prophet and the false prophet was put to death, was that a warning to the people and did it stop that moment of false prophecy? Yes. Did that stop false prophets from happening ever again? No. No. So the New Testament shifts the focus primarily to God's work in the heart of people so that instead of an externally imposed purity, the goal is to move toward a purity that flows out of transformed lives. Which is what God was desiring from Israel, but there is this progression from symbols and actions that are primarily external to realities and actions that should flow from the inside to the outside. Now, has that transformation or that changeover been complete? No. So there is still, I think, a measure of external restraint that God imposes on the world or that God accomplishes through his people. But I don't think we should look at this and say, um, well, that failed. We shouldn't care about it. I think we should look at this and say, if God had that attitude toward it and God is the same God, God still has the same attitude. The thing that has changed is what he requires of you and I as New Testament believers, not whether God is good or bad with false messages. I think verses 4 through 6 um, continue 
um, in, in this idea of father and mother put to death the one who prophesies falsely. What about verse 4? What's going on in verse 4? Why would you be ashamed of your message? Let's start with that. If you know it's not true, you're going to be ashamed of it if you're honest about what's going on. What about the thing about a hairy robe in order to deceive? Okay. What was it also a symbol of? Who else put on a hairy robe in order to deceive? Jacob. Now, I think... Zechariah is doing multiple illusions in the same verse. The prophets are putting on a hairy robe in order to deceive, because that's supposed to be a sign of a true prophet. You know, John the Baptist wears um, animal skins uh, out in the desert. He is a true prophet, but it's possible to put on the clothing of a prophet, but be acting in the spirit of Jacob. Do you see the, the connection I think he's making there? But verse 5 continues, um, instead of claiming to be a prophet, they're going to return to things like tiller of the ground, a man sold me as a slave in my youth. There's going to be a, I'm just an ordinary person, I'm a person of no status, no reputation. So there's a, a progression away from, and the reality is, verse 5, there are a lot of interpretations and it's hard to sort through all of the many interpretations, but the, I think I think the very clear, ba most at the most basic level, he's saying, "I'm not this person of of importance that you should listen to." He's expressing humility and saying, "I'm I'm nobody." Potentially, but if there is a genuine rebuke of God, of so I think there's two scenarios: the person keeps prophesying falsely for God, and God brings death to the person who prophesies falsely, or the person announces their pattern of false prophecy and repents and says, I'm nobody, don't listen to me, I, I'm not doing this anymore. I think that's potentially what's going on in verse 5. Verse 6 is interesting. What are these marks between your arms? Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, does that refer back to verse 3? I think there are, and I want to study this and think about this more, but I think there is, given what we see in the next section here, um, I think there are potentially some messianic overtones, like I think there's a shift in verse 6, transitioning to 7 through 9, and I'll explain that in a moment. Um, Jonathan, what are you thinking? I was just reading the commentary. Whose commentary? Uh, okay, go ahead. Um, it actually says the phrase cannot refer to Messiah, but is a continuation of the false prophet's behavior in verses 4 and 5, when the false prophet denies any association with pagan practices. Others would challenge him to explain the suspicious wounds on his body. False prophets would cut themselves to arouse prophetic ecstasy and idolatrous rites. 
Ming flaming scars represent some attack they suffered from flames. Yeah, James. Uh, I would. I mean, if it's coming from the prophet, and he says, "I'm not a prophet. I'm below the ground." It could be he's trying to reach the people, reach certain people, in order to spread that false prophecy. Like I'm like you. I'm a normal I'm just person. Like you. Yeah, it's possible. So. MacArthur, I think you're saying, Jonathan, is taking five, four through six as a not genuine attempt to continue the false prophecy, right? Okay. Um, if verse four, when it says they're ashamed of their vision, there's two, there's two scenarios in which you're ashamed. You're ashamed and you genuinely repent, or you're ashamed but you want to keep doing what you're doing. So the first one is what we see, for example, with someone like Zacchaeus who stops cheating people. The second one is what we see with any celebrity or politician that gets caught doing something bad. They want to do a PR campaign to get back to where they were before. Um, I think the point I'm trying to make with verse 6 is whether or not it refers to Jesus as the Messiah he was accused of being a false prophet and he was wounded in the house of his friends. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it anticipates the situation in which he finds himself even if it is not specifically messianic to MacArthur's point. Um, look at 7 through 9. Oh, go ahead, does anybody have any thoughts on that? Potentially. Yeah. Yeah, so it could be the thing that Jonathan read, that they're lying about all of these sorts of things. Um, and I think that um, it's something that we should consider further. What about 7 through 9, this further idea of, uh, of cleansing? Yeah, go ahead. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, <coughs> declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. Okay. <coughs> um, is there a... Um, I'm going to read you something from Amos that may be a parallel... Amos seven fourteen to 15. Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I am a herdsman and grower of figs, but the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. So that would be a 
positive example where he says, I'm not a prophet, but God made me to be one. Chapter 13 seems to primarily be directed toward false prophets. The question then is, is 7 through 9 still referring to false prophets? Or is it referring to potentially a, a true prophet in the moment of God's judgment? Sure. Uh, is that based on the words, the Hebrew words that were used, or is that just uh, I think it's an interpretive decision by the translators to associate it with Jesus. Is there anything that would hint to that other than the words themselves? Um, when you say other than the words themselves. Okay. You, are you saying in the words themselves? Is there anything that hints to that? Yes. I don't think so. I didn't go study the Hebrew in detail for this that verse. I think the reason they're associating with it is Jesus' words that says, you know, you're going to be scattered like sheep at the moment of my betrayal and all those sorts of things. Um, now, is that a legitimate interpretation or application of those verses? Potentially, but if you talk about the people who are originally hearing it, I don't know that they would have associated verse 7 with the Messiah. They would have said, all right, shepherd has to do with leaders. Uh, who is that? I think it's probably pointing to Jesus, but I don't know that the people who originally heard it would have thought that. If that does that clarify your question? But there is clearly a, 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 an idea that many will be judged, but some will be preserved and refined through that moment of judgment when there's chaos and scattered and all those sorts of things. Such that, to the point that Peter makes in First Peter, they can genuinely be restored to the point of saying, "These are my people. The Lord is our God." Any any thoughts, Bob? So I was looking at eight. Yeah. Um, is that in reference to it talks about in Revelation? Parts will be cut off and perish. Should all the land? Sure. I think that my response would be there's probably a degree to which Zechariah is intentionally vague so that the warning is not something that people look at and ignore because they say, well, this has already happened or we know exactly what's going on here or those sorts of things. I would make that argument even with a lot of the prophetic words. We want to pen down that it's in AD 2742 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and God's goal is that the reality of a future judgment would motivate righteous living or something along those lines. That doesn't mean that we can't have some guess of when it takes place. If it is in reference to Jesus coming as the Messiah and then being betrayed and crucified, if that's what verse 7 is referring to, then it seems to be that the the verses 8 and 9 would refer more to something like the fall of Jerusalem and God's preserving of a few faithful believers through the fall of Israel under Rome. If it's talking about something else, then it could potentially be tied in with Revelation. Does that make sense? No. Okay, what, what part of...
then 8 could be a further reference to Jesus' work when he returns. Okay. So the way you just explained it almost seems like it's completely separate. 8 is completely separate from 7. If, it, if it's not a reference to Jesus, it's reference to something else that they would have thought of. And then 8 is specifically to Israel. So it makes me curious as to why they would say a third and two-thirds um, if they're not really referencing exact numbers. I mean, I guess. I don't know if they did that commonly, um, use specific numbers like that if there was no specific reference. So, I don't know, it just seems weird that 7 and 8 would be completely separate. I guess the way I was thinking about it was that the, the way that you're describing it would actually be more of a thing unless I'm misunderstanding what you're saying. So if, you, are you following what I'm saying here? If we have Jesus as the Messiah in verse 7 and the events in the first century being what's described in verse 7, but then this is something that Revelation talks about, then we have this huge gap of time. So I guess... Okay. Is this the potential, the first coming, and then the second coming, all referencing him and what he's going to do? The first coming is he's going to die and people will be scattered. And the second coming, he's going to divide. I hear what you're saying. I... I think all I'm saying is I think you could take verse 8 as legitimately either God's judgment and refining of his people in AD 70, destroying their temple, their self-sufficient religious hypocrisy and all of those things, the end result of which is what we see in verse 9 um, in the time of Revelation or even in the time of the church where you have um, Jewish people in the church actually having a, and walking with a relationship with God. Um, I guess, I think what I'm thinking is it comes down to whether you see the gap between 7 and 8 or between 8 and 9. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Okay. Uh, evidence anywhere that 8070 resulted in a third being saved and two, two parts being cut. Was Jeremiah the one where he strikes the hair of the beard with the sword? Ezekiel. Okay. So that's the thing that would come to mind. Do you remember offhand uh, what chapter, Robert? I'm skimming through here. Uh, let's see here. Nope. Not do that. Um, Siege of Jerusalem, the thing with ropes, then there's the not turn. Oh, here we go. All right, chapter 5. Take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, divide the hair, one-third burn in the fire, one-third strike with the sword, 
one-third scatter to the wind. Take a few and bind them in the edges of your robes. So if the language of like one-third, two-thirds, three-thirds, that's something that comes to mind. I'm not saying it's an exact parallel because in this, the remnant seems to be a third part refined through the fire. Uh, so is that the few hairs in the edge of the robe that he tucks in for safety? Or is that actually a full one-third of the ones that go through judgment? I'm not sure that it's being that precise. But to the question of do the prophets use that kind of language in other places, I would say yes. Ezekiel 5 is the one example that comes to mind. Any other questions about that, that part there? I think these are important questions. Here's the, here, the, 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 the thing I'm trying to point out here is that if we try to overlay what we know of history or what we think we know of history with what's said in the prophetic books in a retroactive way, then I think it becomes confusing because Zechariah doesn't give us enough markers to say 100% this is the historical event I'm pointing to. Which goes back to the point I was trying to make, which is Zechariah's point is... Uh, Jonathan James, one of you said, false prophets should be warned and the people should repent. That's the main point that Zechariah is making in light of these things that God has promised to do. So trust God's word. So evildoers be warned. God's people be comforted and look forward with hope to what's going to take place. Is it going to be easy? No. If two-thirds or more of the population is wiped out and a third roughly is preserved, that's huge loss of life to arrive at the goal of the people being purified and actually following after God. Um, I'm sure, although I don't have any specific allusion to this, that somebody has tried to correlate these verses to something like the Holocaust or the various persecutions of Jewish people down through history. Again, I would, I would be hesitant to do that because Zechariah's reference is not tied very specifically to a completely distinguishable moment in history. But his point still stands. God will preserve his people. God's goal will be accomplished, which would be that the people who remain will be devoted and belong fully to him and he be their God. Bob? So I'm not saying that the Jews would recognize this, mm -hmm. but I can, maybe it's just my imagination. Yeah. I think it's plausible. I don't know that we can say it with certainty. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, no. All right, so the last, uh, chapter 14. Let's get into this some. We'll see how far we get here. Um, let me read 1 through 5. A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, the half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So there's a different division, it's half and half instead of two-thirds, one-third. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives in front of Jerusalem on the east and it will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. 
You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee, just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. So, um, here is what God is going to do for his people. Uh, this day is probably referring to the day of the Lord. Um, some people struggle with all the things that are described in chapter 14 because if God has been doing all this work through the church, why does Israel suddenly have prominence again? Um, I think that's more of a problem for people who teach something that's called supersessionism. Supersessionism is basically like if you're changing your will. In every place you had one of your kids' names, you put your friend's name. You're replacing the person you originally promised things to. Does that make sense? A lot of people in the present day say, well, God's done with Israel. They had their shot. They blew it. They're done. So every instance where we see Israel, we should wipe out Israel and we should put church. So instead of a land, we're promised heaven. Instead of um, wealth, we're promised spiritual blessings. Instead of, and the, the list kind of goes on, in sort of these substitutions or changes in the promise that was made. Here's the problem with that. God's example through the minor prophets is that despite, if, if there's any moment in history where God could have said, yep, I'm done with Israel, it would have been in the minor prophets when they've had repeated idolatry and judgment is about to fall in the form of the exile. And God, in the example of Hosea and in other examples, says, no, I haven't given up on you. I'm the faithful one. I will continue to be the faithful one, and I will continue to bring you back. Which, in my mind, argues against the idea that the nature of the covenants was such that the moment Israel disobeyed them, God was done with them. Or even after they had disobeyed them repeatedly, God was done with them. Now, this is not primarily an argument about so-called dispensationalism versus covenant theology. This is an argument about what are we teaching people about the nature of God's character. If God is a God who makes promises and says, I will not change, and then changes because people were unfaithful as they are often prone to do, we are saying that God then changes his character in some respect and changes his promises and changes his mind and all those sorts of things. Now, do we have the language of God changing his mind in response to repentance? Yes. I think it would be interesting to note, and I'd have to go back and study this to make certain of this. I think the language of God changing his mind... No, I'm not going to say that because I'm not... In light of the flood. Uh, what I was going to say was that God generally changes his mind to spare people than to judge them, but in the flood, that same language is used in the reverse, so I think we need to be careful of that. But here's the point that I would try to make. Unless God specifically says, I'm done with a group of people, we shouldn't assume that God is done with a group of people. And if God is still making these promises in the minor prophets that he is going to restore Israel, and this is where I think looking at history does help us, did God restore Israel the way that he promises to do in the minor prophets in the 400 years between the Minor Prophets and the beginning of the New Testament, in the time immediately following the New Testament, in the time between then and now? If the answer is no, then it has to be something God has yet to do. And at the end of the day, we don't have to fully explain why God did or didn't um, 
do something at a particular point in history. We don't have to answer the question of how can God have preeminence for Israel and have had this important role for the church in a way that's 100% satisfactory to us. We just have to say, what did the scripture say was going to happen? And if God keeps his promises, then it's going to happen. So, I think chapter 14, going to the question of are we talking Revelation, are we talking some earlier point, I think chapter 14 is something that's clearly fulfilled in connection with the events described in Revelation. Now, there are people that will say that the events described in Revelation happened in AD 70. There's several major views of Revelation. It happened in AD 70. It will happen in the future. It happened in some sort of a spiritual sense at some point between when it was written and now. Or it's just symbolism about the way that God works in the world and doesn't ever actually happen in detail. There's probably a handful. There's, I mean, there's ridiculous numbers of views on Revelation. Those are some of the major ones. Yeah. To your point, yes, the chapter divisions absolutely create confusion in the interpretation of the Bible. Uh, does it completely ruin it in this case? I, I feel like it's not great. I would agree that probably should be. But here, here's the problem. This is why all of you should study the Bible, and this is why we should be cautious of depending on any one person. So, um, MacArthur has studied the Bible a lot. We should not depend solely on John MacArthur. I'm doing my best to study the Bible and present truth to you. You should not depend solely on my words by the sense that you don't also think about what you've read from the Bible and how it all fits together. The reason that that's important is if a random monk at whatever point writes in chapter divisions, that's a massive undertaking. He's likely to have made mistakes in saying where does the chapter break happen. We can make an argument that there should be no chapter breaks whatsoever and no verses whatsoever. The reason that they are helpful for us at the present moment is in locating where a specific idea is in the Bible. But if they become this thing that determine our understanding of the Bible, then it's a, it's a problem. So, yeah, I think there does seem to be a shift in verse 7 that is tied in with chapter 14. But where the chapter break is, much like whether you capitalize the things in verse 7, is also somewhat of an interpretive decision. We're kind of out of time, so let me just say one more comment at the beginning of chapter 14. We'll plan to finish it up next week. Um, God, in the moment of Israel's future distress, is going to come down and defend his people. That's the short summary of verses 1 through 5. And I think that we see that clearly described in Revelation. And I would argue that we have not seen that kind of thing. Now, we see, we see hints of it in the present-day conflicts in the Middle East. Israel surrounded by enemies? Check. Israel needing help? Check. God coming down to defend them? 
I'm not sure we should see things that they've done with military force as being the fulfillment of that thing. I think it's going to be something even more remarkable. Israel has not, the, the political nation of Israel has not had an all hope is lost kind of moment the way that chapter 14 describes. They've had some very difficult moments, but um, I think that's going to take place take place later. And Right. And I would argue, and again, this is a point of interpretation. We can discuss it more next week. Just as there have been many antichrists, there are many lesser judgments that preview the final day of judgment, which is to say, AD 70 should have been a big wake-up call for people about what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. And I think because there's a lot of similarities between the two, that leads to the confusion of, well, these must be the same thing. It's all done. It's all happened. But, uh, I was talking with my sister-in-law last night, we should think about certain theological positions in light of the entirety of the Bible and in light of plain common sense, which is to say, the view that says we are presently living in the unfolding of God's kingdom has some pretty major flaws. If God's kingdom is described as perfect, if God's kingdom is described as peaceful, if God's kingdom is described as glorious, what is happening right now is a far cry from all those things. So if we want to say what other view of the world, if we're going through, if the tribulation was not seven years, but it's a longer period of time and we're in the middle of that in some respect, I could see that more likely than saying we're in the middle of God's present day glorious kingdom and, and you know everything is great because that's not true. So again, we need to evaluate theological concepts based on the clear statement of scripture and on plain common sense as we look at the world around us. And um, what, regardless of all of those things, again, this is not a question between covenant theology, dispensationalism. It's not a question between a preterist or a futurist interpretation of Revelation. This is saying, what are the promises God have made, has made? What does that teach us about God? What does that then call us to do? What's the application of Zechariah that we looked at today? If you prophesy falsely, God is going to deal with it. If you are in a time of great distress... As one of God's people, he will be faithful and eventually deliver you. And we can all look forward to the day in which he displays those things in an even far more glorious way than we've ever seen. Right? Let's pray. Father, help us as we consider these things to not sell your future short by saying that it's happening right now. Not to be careless about our understanding of the truths of this passage and say, well, none of this matters, so we'll just not worry about it, but also not become so concerned with pinpointing every last thing that we fail to see the overall message, which is you're dealing with those who misuse your words and speak falsely, your deliverance of your people, your preservation of a faithful remnant through great tribulation, and your coming in glory. Help us to look to those things, we pray. Amen.